If at first you don't succeed, 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 11 there. And then we're going to be looking at a couple other passages from Mark and then from Acts that goes along uh, with this. And so, I want to pull up this introduction slide. We're going to be talking about Mark or John Mark, as he's sometimes referred to in the Scriptures. And uh, Mark's story offers hope through failure and through success. And so there's three points we're going to give consideration to. John Mark fails twice, and then he's given another chance, and then God offers us another chance. We've just been concluding the study of 2 Timothy, and that's where Mark is mentioned there in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, where Paul asks Timothy to bring Mark with him when he comes, uh, comes to Rome. And Mark's an interesting study because in 2 Timothy 4, he says, bring Mark because he's profitable me for me for service, showing his confidence in him. Well, certainly earlier on uh, in, in Paul's uh, service to the Lord, there was a time when he associated with Mark that he did not have so much confidence in him. And so we want to give consideration to those kind of where Mark is introduced to us in the scriptures and then noticing some things along the way in his life. And then how it concludes over in 2 Timothy 4, because that's one of the last places that you'll see Mark mentioned within the scriptures. So I'll go ahead and pull up this first point here. I gotta stop that video for money. You probably get tired of watching that guy run. So <laughs> John Mark fails twice. Mark the 14th chapter, verses 51 and 52. The occasion there is the night in which Jesus is arrested. And the description there is just kind of brief. There's no one that is like named, but most scholars readily agree that in Mark 14, 51 and 52, where it talks about that young man who they grabbed a hold of, and then they pull his robe as he's pulling away, and then he actually flees naked. Most agree that was Mark. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes and why that's understood to be Mark. The next time is Acts the 13th chapter and they set out on the first missionary journey which Mark ends up turning around and going back to Jerusalem. And then in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's in prison in Rome and he's asking Timothy to come to him and to bring Mark with him. You know, every part of life and certainly every part of our spiritual life is important. There's a beginning, there's the middle, and then there's that end. And that's certainly what we see with Mark also. We're kind of introduced to him, and then we see kind of that middle part there where he's engaged in going on that missionary journey and some things that happen, and then we see that end. And the end is positive and we certainly want to keep that in mind in our own lives because there's a place where we begin with Jesus Christ it's not always just smooth sailing in between but what is critical is the way it all ends and that's the way it is in Mark's life and why I think that that's beneficial for us to take a look at that there's a beginning there's a middle and there's an end. Let me give you this illustration. 
The year was 1912. The Olympics were going to be held in Stockholm, Sweden that year. There was a marathon runner by the name of, if I can pronounce this correctly, <laughs> from Japan, Shizo Ketakuri. He had qualified to run in the Olympics. Now back in 1912, you just didn't catch an airline flight from Tokyo to Stockholm. There wasn't any airlines to take you. So he was going to have to travel by ship, and then he would have to travel by train, and it was going to take a grand total of 18 days just to get there. Well, along the way, you didn't always have the best accommodations, you didn't always have the best food, you didn't always have the best water. <laughs> and by the time Canterbury gets to Stockholm, he's not feeling well. Luckily enough, he had arrived several days early, and so for five days, he just basically tried to recover and rest. But then it came time for him to compete. Halfway through that marathon, he collapsed. Well, in that day and time, neither was the medical attention and the accommodations and so forth what they are today. A local family took him in, kind of nourished him back to health, so he got to the point where he could travel back to Japan. Kanakuri was embarrassed. In his native country of Japan, honor was a big thing. He didn't even tell the Olympic officials what had happened. He just kind of stayed under the radar, so to speak, and he went home. The Olympic officials just recorded him as missing. Several years later, several years later, 1967, it had been discovered that Kanakuri, who never finished that race, was back in Japan, he was still alive, and the Olympic Committee contacted him. And they asked him, would you like to finish the race that you started but never got to complete? He was honored by the request. He said, yes, I would. So he traveled back to Stockholm. He ran that same course. And at the end of that course, just like they do with all Olympic athletes, they record officially their time. This is Canterbury's time. 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, 20.3 seconds is his official time for that marathon. Ask, afterward, he was asked to comment about that, and Kenneth Curry responded, and he said, well, it was a long trip. And he said, along the way, I got married, I had six children, and ten grandchildren. It was a long course. And so what's he saying? Well, there was a beginning. There was this kind of messy in-between. And then finally, he finished. And he felt honored once again. Well, the Bible's full of those kind of stories, aren't they? You remember Moses? Moses started off in Egypt on the knee of his mother and is taught that he is a Hebrew, but as he grows older, he kills an Egyptian, and then he flees. 
And he's in the wilderness and a shepherd for 40 years before God finally calls him and sends him back to Egypt and he becomes the great deliverer and lawgiver that we know recorded on the pages of the Old Testament. We know stories like about Peter, about how he spent three years with Jesus. And then on the night when he was betrayed, on the night when he was arrested, Peter denied him three times and ran away. In Mark the 14th chapter, in about verses 52 and or 51 and 52. I want to read what it says there once again. Mark read this earlier for us, but I want to read this so and kind of get it in our minds and think about the occasion there and what's taking place. It says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man, and and as they laid a hold of the young man, he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Hours earlier, Jesus has been in an upper room with the other disciples, the apostles. They have eaten the Passover, they have celebrated the Lord's Supper, and now he has left Jerusalem. He has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. All of his disciples are there. The apostles are there. He takes three and he goes a little bit further into the garden and he asks them to watch and to pray and then he goes further and falls down and he pleads with his father that this cup might pass from him. But not according to his will, but his father's will. And then time passes. Judas shows up with soldiers, the chief priests, elders, and he walks up to Jesus and he betrays him with a kiss. And then one of the disciples reaches out and he grabs a sword and he swings that thing violently. One of the servants of the chief priests is standing there and luckily he ducks He doesn't lose his head, but he loses an ear. And then Jesus steps in to sort of calm the situation. But when he does, all of the disciples then flee. Then we have this young man. They see him. He's following kind of at a distance, but close enough that those from that mob see him and they try to grab him. And then that's when he whirls away, he loses his robe, and he records that he ran away naked. They all ran. (laughs) In that moment, they all run. Mark records this. Not only that he ran, he ran away naked but my question is this what if he stayed what if he didn't run when they seized him what if he had been willing 
to allow them to rest Him and take Him along with Jesus as they took Him. What if He had stood with Jesus? And what if He had told them, I know this man. And I know what He claims. I know what He has done. And I believe He is who He says He is. And you may arrest Him. But that doesn't change my opinion. And I'm not running. I'm staying. What if He had said, I heard Him when He said a servant is no greater than His Master. I heard Him when He said, if they hated Me, they will hate you also. So if that's what you're going to do, then you'll just have to do it. Because I'm not running. What if he just said, I started this journey with him. I'll finish this journey with him. You know, I thought about that as I read that this week and I thought, you know, we may never we think we may never be faced with soldiers questioning us about what we think about Jesus maybe one day we will but we do make decisions about whether or not we stand with him see every time a person obeys the gospel what they're saying is, I stand with Jesus. Every time the church assembles on the first day of the week, you're saying, I stand with Jesus. Every time we get together as brothers and sisters in Christ and we study together, we try to encourage one another. We're saying, I stand with Jesus. Every day, when we get up in the morning, and within our homes, and within our families, and on our jobs, and in our association with other people, the way we conduct our life, we say whether or not we stand with Jesus. So Mark 14 and verse 52 it says that he fled naked exposed in that hour when Jesus could have used somebody to stand with him they ran they all ran and I think it's interesting that Mark records not only did it run, he ran naked. He ran exposed. Every moment 
we make decisions about where we stand. And we can make the decision whether we stand with Jesus in that moment or we run. And when we choose to run, guess what? We just got exposed. That's Mark 14 and verse 52. The next time we see Mark is Acts the 13th chapter. And this is when they are getting ready to set out on that first missionary journey. So I'm going to read to you from, Mark, or from Acts 13, verse 2, and then skip down to verse 4 and 5. Acts 13 and verse 2. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit now said, Separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So now they're getting ready to set out on that first missionary journey. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John, that's John Mark, as their assistant. Here's these three setting out this historical, legendary journey. The year... It's probably about 46 or 47 A.D. That night in the garden was about 14 years earlier. It's about 33 A.D. So now here we are, 14 years later. Paul and Barnabas are setting out on that first missionary journey and John Mark is going with them. And so they leave from Salamis, they go to Cyprus, and they travel through that island they leave Paphos and they head to Pergamon or Perga. And when they get there, about verse 13, it will tell us that's where Mark decides to leave them and go back to Jerusalem. I think it's interesting also. They have left, they have sailed, they have come to an island, traveled through that island, and now they go to Perga, and this is where the land journey begins. And most historians would tell you during that day and period of time that as they land there and then they're going to head north, the trails and roads and so forth that they are going to travel over are very dangerous at that particular time. And you're just kind of out there and you're just kind of exposed to the elements and you're just kind of exposed to thieves and robbers and whoever might come along. And Mark says, I'm going back to Jerusalem. And I think about as they journeyed and what they might encounter and the dangers that they might encounter, I think about the fact if they run into robbers or muggers, they can't call the police. There's no police out there to call. And so sometimes I think about that. And I think about when we encounter dangers and troubles and all those kinds of things. And we willingly dial up 911, don't we? 
And we even talk about that thin blue line, don't we? That's what stands between us and the harm that we can be encountered with. But they didn't have a thin blue line to call out there, did they? And so Mark says, I'm going home. I want you to think about this for a minute. Trying to make a spiritual application. In your daily life, spiritually, what's the thin blue line that keeps you safe? There's the world. There's Jesus. What keeps the world from getting you? Is there a thin blue line? And if there is, what is it? I know this. I know that David said in Psalms 119, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's the blue line. I know that when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, with each temptation he answered like this, the word says, it is written. That was the blue line. And so when we think about Mark, him turning away, Yeah, there was danger there. And he left. But when we think about us, and we think about spiritually, we have to think also, what keeps us safe from the world and from Satan? And what is that line? I think it's interesting also in Acts 13 and verse 5, depending on which translation you're reading from, It says that Mark was going along, John was going along as their assistant. Some translations say that he was going along as their helper. And you know, we think about whenever you're working for the Lord, it's always good to have an assistant, it's always good to have a helper, isn't it? (laughs) In other words, for the Lord. But Mark turns away, so what's that tell us? Now you have one less Helper, don't you? And I think there's a point to be made there. Because in Matthew, the ninth chapter, when Jesus is looking out upon the people and his disciples are there with him, and he recognizes how many souls are out there, what does he say? He says the harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of souls out there that need to be saved. But he goes on to say what? But the laborers are few. Pray therefore that the Lord of harvest will send laborers into his field. Mark turns back 
So he ran away that night in the garden. And now they get to Perga. And he leaves again. And I think it's worth noticing when it says that he had gone along as their helper. And he turned back. Now think about what it didn't say. It didn't say we got to Perga and Mark no longer believed. And so he left. Doesn't say that, does it? It says they got to Perga and Mark went back to Jerusalem. So here's another thought. In Luke the ninth chapter, Jesus is talking about those who turn away. And he says, if any man puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, he's not worthy of the king. You ever think about that? He put his hand to the plow. What do you do with the plow? <laughs> you plow a field, don't you? You go to work, don't you? And so he put his hand to the plow. And he turned back. I think it's significant when it says that he had gone along as their helper. And it doesn't say that he stopped believing. He just stopped helping. Isn't that what it said? And so we have to think about us. We have to think about Christians. And we have to think about God, what God has called us to do. And that we are to be laborers in the vineyard. And sometimes people still believe, but they just stop laboring. Right? Isn't that what happened? He went along as a helper, and sometimes we still believe, we just stop helping. So that's what it says about Mark. And that's Acts 13. Now then, Acts 15 is the next time that we see Mark. This is the second missionary journey. This is a couple of years later. And so here's Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Mark. And they're getting ready to head out on the second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to take Mark along. And what's Paul say? Nope. Don't want to take him. Why doesn't he want to take him? Take a look at Acts 15 and verses about 36 through 40. Acts 15. It says, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take them with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had, gone, and had not gone with them to the work. 
Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Paul said he turned back from the work once before. So I don't want to take him along this time. And so Paul vigorously refuses. He says, no. Mark can't be counted on. Now I want to just say something right there. Because we do know the rest of this story. But we do know at this time that the Apostle Paul says, based upon past actions, I don't want to take him. I don't trust him anymore. He turned back on us before. I don't want to take him. Was he right? Well, what's the rest of the story, right? And what we come to understand from this is there's times in life where we may know Christian brethren and we might get hurt by them. We might be disappointed by them. But the thing that we learn from this story is you got to be open to what God can do with a person and with their life and with their heart. So close to 10 years will pass from this time and we'll hear about Mark again. This time it's over in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, the fifth chapter, as Paul or as Peter's about to close this letter. In verse 13, he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Now Mark's with Peter. We send our greetings. But he specifically mentions. That Mark's there with him. When Paul refused to take Mark along, that was about 50 AD. This is the early 60s. This is at least a decade later. And we have to think to ourselves, what happened with Mark over that 10-year period? There's that runner again. (laughs) Stop that. So we have to think about what happened with Mark over that 10-year period. So let me give you just a little insight. In Acts the 12th chapter, this is just a short period of time, maybe just a couple years or so, after Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended. And in Jerusalem, the disciples continued to increase and to multiply. Until eventually in Acts 8, because of persecution has become so severe that they have been scattered. But there's apostles still in Jerusalem. And so Herod arrests James and he puts him to death. And when he sees that that pleased the Jews... He then proceeds to arrest Peter. You remember that? Acts 12 chapter? 
and he throws him in jail. But what happens? God sends an angel by night and leads Peter out. And at first, Peter can't hardly believe what's going on. He thinks he's having some kind of a dream or something. And then he finally comes to realize, this is real. I'm free. I'm back on the streets of Jerusalem. But here's the interesting part. Once he recognizes he's free, where does he go? Well, we're told. He went to the house of Mary. Mary must have been fairly well off because the disciples gathered there. So it must have been big enough to accommodate. accommodate. And so Peter says, that's where I'm going. But there's something else that's told us there. That Mary is the mother of guess who? John Mark. How? Did John Mark know all the apostles? He lived right there in Jerusalem, didn't he? How did John Mark know Peter? Because Peter knew his mother well. And when he got out of jail, he went straight to Mary's house. In Mark 14, that's where we started. They come to arrest Jesus. It's probably the middle of the night, midnight. Maybe later. There's a ruckus, and all the disciples flee. And then there's this young man. And they try to lay hands on him and grab a hold of him. And he has on this robe thrown over his naked body because that's the way it's recorded. And then he pulls away and and he's running. (laughs) Naked. That same night, we have recorded for us in the book of Mark that after they fled and they had arrested Jesus, Peter went to the house of the high priest where they were gathered together. And there were some that were there that were out there warming themselves by the fire. And then there's this young girl and she recognizes Peter. She said, he's one. He was with him. And Peter says, no, what? And so then it gets pressed again. He said, no. And then it's pressed the third time and then he begins to curse and swear, I do not know this man. And just as Jesus had told him when Peter was adamant that I will always stand with you, Lord, Jesus said, this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And just as he denied the third time, the rooster crowed for the second time. And then Jesus looked at Peter. And in Matthew it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. Isn't that interesting? Peter knew what it was like to fail the Lord. But Peter also knew 
what it was like to be given another chance. Because somewhere in that 40-day period, between the time when Jesus was resurrected before He ascended, Peter had given up and he had gone back to fishing. Until that morning that Jesus met him on the shores of Galilee. And Jesus had a talk with Peter. Remember that? And he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, you know I do, Lord. You know all things. And so then Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, follow me. He denied him three times. He was asked three times, do you love me? And Peter said, you know I do. Then follow me. And he gives him another chance. So in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter in verse 11, Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you for he's profitable for service for me. Now what about Paul? The Lord's willing to give a second chance, but I want you to notice from the book of 1 Timothy, which we studied here recently also. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 14 through 16. Paul says, And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. What Paul's saying? I know the grace of God. I know what's been extended to me. I know that He was long-suffering. And the Lord did that so that I might be a pattern to others. Do you think He was a pattern to Mark? There was a point in Paul's life where he said, Mark, you're not going with us. (laughs) I don't want you to go. I don't know and I can't tell you exactly when Paul changed his mind about Mark. But he did. And I know what he wrote in 1 Timothy. And he thought about what the Lord had done for him. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever known a Christian who's not been faithful? (laughs) Or have you ever enjoyed and experienced God's grace yourself? Have you ever gone to a brother or sister put your arm around them? Said, I know the grace of God. And I want to remind you of it. Do you think Peter ever took Mark aside and put his arm around his shoulder and said, Son, because that's what he calls him, Son, let me tell you about when I failed. And the Lord gave me a second chance. I know this. 
Mark's with Peter <laughs> when he writes that letter. Is that how they made a connection? I know Peter knew Mark's mother. And you know what? That night, whenever that mob assembled, I imagine there was a ruckus in Jerusalem, don't you? And Mark lived with his mother right there in Jerusalem. And do you think possibly he might have thought, whoa, something's going down. <laughs> and so he grabs a robe, throws it over his shoulders, and out the door he goes right to Gethsemane. And guess what? While he's standing in the shadows, uh-oh, they see me. Think that's possible? And in that moment, he turns and runs. And then, I know he's a believer. And he wants to go on that first missionary journey. And he goes for a ways. And he was going as a helper. And then he stops. It never does say that he quit believing. It just says he quit helping. <laughs> and then on that second journey... Paul says, no, I, I don't want to take it. Well, who did he go with? Barnabas. Do you know what Barnabas' nickname is? He's the son of encouragement. Do you think Mark needed that? I think he did. I just know along the way, that somehow he returned to service. And I know he's with Peter when Peter writes that letter in the early 60s. And I know before the second Timothy's written and Paul's life ends, he says, you get Mark and bring him with me. And isn't it significant that he says, you bring him with me and for what reason? Because <laughs> he's profitable for service. He's a worker. So Paul had been reconciled to him. Hadn't he? I'll give you this last illustration. Because we all need second chances. And so this morning when I gave this lesson a title, if at first you don't succeed, how's the rest of that go? <laughs> try, try, try again. So that's why I didn't entitle it A Second Chance. Because A Second Chance doesn't cover it. <laughs> I need a third, I need a fourth, I may need a fifth. <laughs> I may need a lot before I finally lock in and stay on, stay faithful. <clears throat> so the year was 1854. There was a young army captain that was stationed in the Oregon Territory. Oregon wasn't the state then. <laughs> it was the Oregon Territory. Very remote out there. This young captain had a wife back in Missouri and a young son. 
he got very lonely out there. He missed home, wanted to go home, and he allowed himself to fall into a bad habit of alcohol. It finally got to the point where his commanding officer said, you've got a choice to make. You can either resign your commission or I'm going to bring you up on charges and you'll stand before a court-martial. So the young officer said, I'll resign. He went back to the middle of the country and then he eventually went to New York where he ended up struggling for a period of time, broke, but then 10 years pass. I don't know what all transpired in his life, but I know historically this is recorded that it was 1864 and he walked into the Willard Hotel with a young boy in tow. And as he walked up to the hotel counter, the clerk looked up and there was a registry and he spun it around. He said, I need you to sign in. So the officer said, fine. He signed it, spun it back around. The clerk was shocked. The signature, Ulysses S. Grant, Supreme Commander of the Union Forces. I'm not sure what turned his life around from an alcoholic and a failure <laughs> to where he's commander over all of the Union Forces. But what's most important is to know that in life we oftentimes, we all need another chance. And given another chance, and given encouragement, remembering that oftentimes is what motivates us to be the very best that we can be. So the next time that you don't succeed, I don't want you to just think about if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, think about Mark. Think about Mark. He was a young man. He failed. He tried again. He failed. But Barnabas, son of encouragement, Peter, an apostle, somebody must have put their arm around him said, son, you can do better. And he did. So that's the lesson from the life of John Mark as he's recorded on the pages of the New Testament. I want to extend the invitation to any and all that are here this morning. If you've never rendered obedience on the gospel, today is an opportunity, a chance to do that very thing. If you're a child of God and not been living faithfully, the Lord offers another chance. The invitation's yours while together we stand and while we sing.